All right, all right. You guys ready? Settle on in. Good to be with you guys. Good morning. If you didn't get one of these, you're going to want this, especially this week. So this is the session on Hebrews. Bob is running around with a stack of them. If you don't have one, raise your hand. Hebrews, Hebrews, Hebrews. There you go. Thank you. Chad, good to see you. Hebrews here. Okay, you guys, we're so close. What we've been doing here, if you're just kind of stumbling into the room, for the last several months, we have been looking at each book in the New Testament one at a time. And we're doing it in a, in a, it might look a little haphazard, but there's a method to the order. What, I'm, what I've been trying to model for you guys as we walk through the New Testament is a way to read the New Testament. My suggestion to you, if, you're, if you've never read through the New Testament or if you're not sure if you've read it all, or if you just want to begin the process of building kind of a daily habit to get five or 10 or 20 or 30 or whatever minutes of time in the scriptures every day, You might start like this and read Luke and then Acts and then Romans. Luke because it gives you a fantastic historical kind of framework of Jesus' life. Acts because it's the sequel to Luke. And then Romans because it really lays the theological foundation for the message of Christianity. So you read Luke, Acts, Romans. And then honestly, read anything you want. Read a couple of books. Read some of the letters. You get something from Paul or Peter. Read Read a handful of those. And then after you've read, you know, two, three, four, whatever, go back and pick another gospel I don't care which one, Matthew or Mark or John, and then read a handful of letters, another five, say, and then go back and do another gospel, do a bunch of letters, back to another gospel, do a bunch of letters, and do it in that way until you're all done, except the only other addition I would say is you want to save Hebrews and Revelation to the end, because Hebrews and Revelation are the most complex books in the New Testament, and I have a very distinct memory when I was in college and I began to read my Bible that I read Hebrews and it was like walking through wet cement the entire time. Like I had no idea what was happening. And when I was done, I had no idea what I had read. I just didn't have any of the prerequisite knowledge to really make sense of it. So I was lost the entire time. Okay, so for that reason, I would really say you want to save. And then Revelation is even worse. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But um, save Hebrews and Revelation to the end. Although, here's the dirty little secret. Even if you do this and you start Luke, Acts, Romans... Bunch of letters, gospel, bunch of letters, gospel, bunch of letters, gospel, and save Hebrews and Revelation to the end, it probably won't even help you that much, okay? Because Hebrews is not a complex interaction with the New Testament that you will have just read. It's a very complex interaction with the Old Testament, which you still might not yet have read, okay? So properly speaking, we might say, save Hebrews till you've read the Old Testament, but we're not going to do that. But just know that as you go through it, it's going to be difficult. My job today, however, is to make it less difficult. And so what I want to do today, we're going to spread Hebrews out over a couple of weeks because it's just a big one. We're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at Hebrews so that when you read it, you will not be as lost as I was when I read it. Um, It really, it's it's very well organized. There's there's an awful lot of stuff. And if you know what you're looking for, then I think it'll be a great assist. I just waded into it in a state of profound and utter ignorance, and that didn't work as well for me. So we're going to try to roll that back a little bit for you, okay? So, as we often do, what do you know about Hebrews? You guys get first dibs. Gil? Okay, so faith. So faith is a major theme in Hebrews. In particular, do you guys know what chapter of Hebrews is known as the Hall of Faith or the Faith Hall of Fame? Chapter 11. If you go through... 
Um, and you look at, you go to Hebrews 11, like every verse is like by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Massive theme as the author of Hebrews looks back into this really extensive cast of characters and talks about all that is done by faith. Not just here by us, but also by that, by that prior, uh, by the folks that lived before Christ. And that's a little bit important because we have a tendency, perhaps, to think, uh, I became a Christian by faith. And I walk by faith because I know Jesus and I believe in Jesus. But prior to Jesus, you couldn't have faith in Jesus because he didn't exist. And so they did things by works. So under Hebrew, Old Testament, Jewish, whatever, it's a works righteousness. Like the, the message is basically be good. And then Christianity comes along and says, well, it's no longer about what you do. It's about what you believe. And so this whole faith thing is a new concept. And everything I just said is false, right? What the author of Hebrews is saying is, no, 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 no. We live by faith. They lived by faith. It has always been by faith from first to last. And that's one of the things that he's arguing, that Christ is, he is better than, for sure, we'll get to that, he, but he is fulfilling what has always been, right? So it's not a deviation. This is not some new idea that God wants us to trust him. That has always been the plan, that we live by faith, right? The difference here for us, who are in Christ now at this side of the cross is that we have faith in what God has already done. Whereas the folks that the book of Hebrews is talking about, they were required to have faith in what God would do. So you can think of it a little bit like this. If the cross is the payment for our sins, and it is, in the Old Testament, people were saved by credit, right? They were, they were believing that a payment would come. And those of us who live in the New Testament, we're saved more by debit, by an application of a payment that was already made, right? So we look in faith back to the cross, the debit payment. They, look, they looked in faith up to the cross, this credit payment. Make sense? Okay, Hebrews, faith. What else do you know about Hebrews? Jesus is better. Better, 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 better. If there's one summary statement for the book of Hebrews, it's that. Jesus is better. I'll, we'll walk through, maybe today, maybe next time, we'll talk through in what sense he is better, but if there's any one phrase for Hebrews, Jesus is better, okay? He's better. Well, Bob, what's he better than? We'll just do a real quick list. What's he better than? He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's, it's a better covenant, uh, better, everything's better. Yeah, better than angels, better than Moses. It's a better covenant, make a better sacrifice and a better sanctuary. He speaks a better word. He's better, 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 better. The supremacy of Christ is the driving message of Hebrews. I'll show you what, where that fits into his overall argument in a few minutes. Okay, Jesus is better. Faith. Anything else? Big things out of Hebrews. Chris? Uh, I'm interested in hearing um, the difference uh, between, you know, Sinai and Zion with, with what you were talking about, that it's a continuation of, I can see in Hebrews where he was talking about, um, the, the faith being the same from, from Abel or from Enoch all the way all, all the way to the um, to Christ. But I guess I'm still wondering the contrast between Sinai and Zion in Excellent. Okay. So Chris is pointing out that we can do or or Hebrew the author of Hebrews does a comparison and a contrast. So comparing life under the old covenant to life under the new covenant there's a lot of stuff that's the same, right? Faith being maybe the, the primary girder that runs from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So we can compare those. But Chris is also pointing out, but aren't there contrasts? And there are. And Chris is representing, as Hebrews does, there's Mount Sinai. And what's Mount Sinai famous for? 
the law, which we get the law, and Mount Zion, kind of this promised land that we're moving to and all that Christ has accomplished, how do these things differ? And Hebrews is going to make a very explicit statement. Well, in fact, we can look at it briefly. I think I have, I'll, I'll explain where this fits, but just for the sake of getting to the text, um, go to the back. It's chapter 12. You can look at chapter 12, verse 18, or you can just stay right here on the bottom of this, below this little dotted line. Here's how he compares, here's how he, no, rather, here's how he contrasts these mountains. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. That is Mount Sinai, right? To, to, uh, to trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. That sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. He's casting the law in these very fearsome terms. Mount Sinai was a land, look at it, of fire, darkness, gloom, and storm. Because we stand guilty. And Mount Sinai is for us a mountain of death. He says, you haven't come to that mountain. Instead, you come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember, Abel's blood cried out judgment on Cain who had murdered him. And Jesus, who was also murdered, his blood cries out mercy. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing, this, we're kind of getting to the meta argument here, is Jesus is better. It's a better mountain, and the blood speaks a better word because it's a word of mercy and grace to people who are guilty under judgment, right? So, that is a, so there's a great deal of continuity, but absolutely, because the, the betterness is necessarily discontinuity. It's not that. We don't like that. Don't. I had a friend who, who observed that sometimes um, Jews, a Jewish tombstone will sometimes be shaped like the Ten Commandments. And my friend, when he saw, when he saw this like, gravestone shaped like the Ten Commandments and a dead body buried underneath it, his comment to that was, man, do not bury me under the law. Oh. Right? Like, that is not, that's not what I'm looking for. Bury me under a cross where somebody else has paid my penalty. Right? We've come to a better mountain. Kelly Sue? Another um, contrast in being Jesus being the better sacrifice is he kind of does a treatment on Leviticus 16 in Hebrews 9 and 10, and, he, and, and it's this unprecedented access we have to God that we've never had. Yes. You, you had to go through, you know, the temple itself, the tabernacle itself is designed to keep you out of the presence of the Holy Holies. And now in Absolutely. Yeah, so in, and we'll, we'll get here maybe today or maybe, maybe next time. In, in Hebrews nine, 8, 9, and 10, uh, when, when we walk through, the, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 is all about Jesus making a better sacrifice and a better sanctuary that leads to a better covenant. And one of the things, one of the, one of the facets of its betterness is exactly as Kelly said, it's access that we who once were barred from his presence are now invited in. And that's, even in, even in Hebrews 12, it's the same language when he says, you haven't come to a mountain that cannot be, that, that, uh, that is burning with fire to this thing that blocks you away, but rather, you've come to one where there's 
people in joyful assembly. You once were barred, but now you are welcomed in. And that is entirely purchased by the cross, by Christ on his cross. Yeah, Judy? Maybe you already said this, and I missed it, but the whole, the whole book itself is an argument for Hebrews who were very familiar with the Old Testament, who knew all the laws, who knew how impossible it was to keep it, who knew the predictions of the future. And it's, it's a very logical argument comparing the fulfillment of all the prophecies with this, with the, what, it, what Jesus is. Yeah. So it covers everything they believe and then does the comparing and contrasting. Yes. Reasonable logic. Yes. Okay. So uh, what Judy's saying is that as, as you walk through this book, you're going to see, and this is, this is why it's so hard for us. It's written to a Jewish audience. It's written to a people that are very, apparently, very fluent with the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you are, then you're like, yeah, of course. makes total sense. And if you're not, then you're going to think, what in the world are you talking about? Like, I don't even know where you're... He's, he's, it's just absolutely peppered with Old Testament. Direct citations, constant quotations, but also just an innumerable allusions to the Old Testament, to Old Testament characters. And like, if I were to say to you, if I were to say, blah, 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 David, blah, 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 you'd be able to double-click on David in your mind and pull up like, oh, I know, that's the guy, he was the king, or, you know, he killed Goliath, or, he, you know, Amnon, Absalom, whatever. You have different files in your brain about David, which makes it accessible to you. But if you didn't know who David was, and I say David, it's just a word. It means it's empty, right? There's a lot of characters, there are a lot of events that might be, you're like, I just don't even know what you're talking about, and it makes it harder. But he knows all about it. He assumes his audience knows all about it. And so that's why for us to really mine this thing, we're going to have to kind of get up to speed on some of those things. Okay, one more thing, and then I will try, start to kind of glue together a, uh, a high view of this thing. Hebrews, anybody got, you got some? Okay, this is, the, this is the most anonymous thing in the New Testament. People have speculated, was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it a disciple of Paul? Who was it? Nobody knows. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really care. But nobody knows. And if they, th if they think they know, they're... They, they probably don't know. So, Kelly? Um, one last big thing about Hebrews is it's a scary book because there's warnings that are often misunderstood because they're about Israel and its history, but they're present in Hebrews and it rattles our cage, but then they're followed by reassurance. Yes, okay. So probably, for most people, the scariest warning passage in the New Testament is in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is famous for telling people that you can lose your salvation, and not only that, but you can't get it back, right? It's impossible for those who have once tasted to then be brought back to repentance. They'd have to crucify Jesus all over again. It's a very terrifying passage, Hebrews 6. But what's funny about Hebrews 6, in my opinion, uh, is that it's not at all unique to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is riddled with warnings, the whole thing, over and over again, there are very stern, very stark warnings. I want to show you where they fit in the whole argument. That's going to be really important to understand what he is saying, what he is not saying. So that we won't, the problem is some of us are like, well, I believe that you can't lose your salvation. Therefore, the warning passages don't mean anything at all. And we can just ignore them, right? Others would say, well, I, maybe I'm not sure if you can or can't lose your salvation, but it sure seems like you can, so I guess... We need to live in a state of constant dread and uncertainty. And I think both of those are erroneous approaches, but they're understandable approaches, right? So we're going to try to see what Hebrews offers very stern warnings. It is not meaningless, all right? We have to look at and see what it means and where it fits in this total argument, okay?
All right, so let's do this. We'll, we'll kind of roll it back up to the top. Hebrews is almost certainly a uh, transcription of a sermon. When you read it, you may notice that it feels more audible than visual. Things like he'll repeat things over and over again that wouldn't be necessary if you could just look up the page, but are very necessary if you're just listening to me talk, right? So it is written down. It refers to itself as a letter, a brief word. I've written you briefly this word of exhortation. I think that it was initially a sermon, and then it was transcribed into a letter and mailed out. So when you read it, you'll, you'll just notice some things that feel, again, feel audible. It was a sermon transcribed and sent out to a particular community, probably, based on the things that we've said here, a Jewish community. Believers, followers of Christ, they're Jewish based on the fact that they are supposed to have a very rich understanding of the Old Testament Scripture, and, and they are people that have suffered, they have suffered faithfully, they have suffered obediently, they have persevered walking with Christ, but they might not do that anymore. It's written to a group of people who, if you imagine when you were a new believer, it was costly, but you endured it and you got through it and you have, are faithful to Christ, but as the years have gone on, the cost just has accrued. Do you know this event, do you know this phenomena? It's been a while. Yeah, I mean, you had a high point here and you really endured a lot of stuff, but now we're out here and it's been a while and it's just not that much. I've had enough persecution, thank you very much, and I don't want to play anymore. Do you know this phenomena? Sometimes like life is an endurance game. Right now, you guys know our son Max was in a motorcycle accident. And the initial days were pretty terrible and miserable and excruciating. And he got through that and he persevered through that. But he's been, you know, unable to do anything at all for like a month. And now he's at the point where it's just not fun not having fun. You know, you've been there, right? It's like it's been a long time. And now your friends that are all super supportive in the beginning... They're off doing fun things, and they're awesome, but they got fun things to go do, and you're just stuck on Christ. You know this, right? This is where the Hebrews are, and the author or the, or the preacher is communicating to them, hey, you did it. You stayed faithful, but I'm noticing your grip's getting a little light. You're beginning to delaminate, and, and it looks like not only might you, you might be walking away from Jesus, or you might be actually just moving back to Judaism. I'm just going to worship God like we used to. It was, a little, it was a little less costly. And so he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. What Jesus is, is better, better, better than what you've come out of. He is better than anything you might think about moving so-called forward to. He is the apex of the whole thing. Don't abandon him, right? In fact, you come from a people, you come from a Jewish nation that knows all about abandoning God. Do you remember the wilderness? Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember that in our own people, we were brought out of slavery and we went into the promised land, but before we got there, we spent 40 years in the wilderness, right? You're in the wilderness. You live, you, if you're in this room right now at Church of the Holy Spirit, you live between Egypt and promised land. This is the wilderness, right? We have left slavery, but we're not home yet. And he points out that in, in he, he uses Psalm 95, I'll show you this. He used Psalm 95 as a primary lens really to look at the, 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 the era of the, in the book of Numbers. And he says, don't you remember? There were a whole bunch of people that left, the, left Egypt, but they never made it to the promised land. Their bodies fell in the desert. Don't be like them. Do not be those 
to leave Egypt and then give up on the way and die in the desert. Stay the course, finish the game, cross the river, come all the way in. That's what he's saying. And he's, he's, he's making the case that if Jesus is better, if what he offers is so dramatically superior, and if disobedience in the desert led to death, how much more severely do you think we would be at risk if we who have tasted Christ himself abandoned him? That went badly for them. We would be abandoning something so much greater, so much grander, and therefore how much worse would our fall be? Finish the game. Do not abandon him. Go all the way in. Okay? That's essentially the book of Hebrews. On the way, he's going to say, listen, Jesus is better than the angels, which is to say he speaks a better word. Angels are messengers. Jesus' message is better than the angel's message, and the angel's message was the law. The law was put into effect through angels. And he's saying he's better than the angels because the grace that he offers is better than the law. He's better than Moses. Moses brought the law. What Jesus brought was himself. He is better here than the angels of Moses, speaking a better word. He is a better king. We'll talk about that. This is a little bit hidden. I'll show you how that works. He's not only a better king, he's a better priest. And that priest offers a better sacrifice and a better sanctuary that leads to a better covenant. And then finally, the third main movement is that he is our forerunner. He's the one, he, it's a big, great big, life is a great big follow the leader game. He is the leader. We follow him and we follow him all the way. Okay, he's a better king. He's a better priest. He's a better forerunner. Never abandon him. That, in a nutshell, is the book of Hebrews, okay? But he says it with a lot of words, all right? So here's what you're going to look for. First thing, if you go to the front, I, I, try, I think this is comprehensive in terms of the actual direct citations. I know that it is not anywhere close to comprehensive in terms of the total allusions to Old Testament, okay? But even just with the direct citations, can we agree that's a ton of scripture he's quoting? He's all over the place. He's just all, I mean, he's from, he's from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, 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 Psalms. He loves the Psalms. Proverbs, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Haggai. That's a lot. All right, he's all over the place. But his favorite passage, without any question, is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the New Testament's favorite Old Testament chapter. It's cited probably about 25 times in the New Testament. It gets quoted over and over and over and over. And so we're going to take a minute. Oh, gosh. We're going to take a minute. Might, we might do three weeks on Hebrews. Um, we're going to take a minute and look at Psalm 110 because it's probably the, well, it's, I think it's the most important passage in, uh, in the Old Testament for the book of Hebrews, for the argument that he's making. I want you to see what he's doing with it. It's incredibly crucial, and it's not just in Hebrews. Only about a third of the usages of Psalm 110 show up in Hebrews. The rest are scattered out throughout the New Testament. All the New Testament writers love this psalm, and we don't tend to be very familiar with it. So, here it is. Here's how it goes. Psalm 110. It's of, it's of David. The Lord says to my Lord, by the way, Jesus quotes that line. How is it that David, speaking of this, says, the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's, dawn, morning's womb. What office 
is that describing? Those first you know, several verses of Psalm 110? King. King. It is a king who has a scepter. It is the king who sits at the right hand of the Father. It is a king who rules in the midst of his enemies. It is the king who leads his troops. Psalm 110 is about a person who is the undisputed king. This is the same king of Psalm, one, of, of Psalm 2, which is the coronation of Messiah. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm extolling the kingship of Messiah. But that's not all. The second part says to this person who is king, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. What Psalm 110 is explaining in, in language that might not be immediately accessible to us is that someone will come someday who will be both king and priest. Okay, now we looked at this a little bit in Zechariah, so some of you might be like, can you stop talking about this, please? Sure, 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 in just a second. Um, <laughs> Adam was king. He was given the garden. He was given the cosmos to rule. Adam was priest. Adam was both king and priest. Garden of Eden was a temple. He was supposed to be a priestly king and a kingly priest, but he blew it, and everything went just all to hell. It just all fell apart. And he was no longer a king. He lost the king. His kingship was usurped. And he really lost the priesthood. He was banished from the temple. And then God decides to split it up. Some will be kings and some will be priests. But someday somebody's going to come who will be both king and priest. Psalm 110 is talking about this character. He is the king of Psalm 2. And he is the priest. He's not a Levitical priest. He's a different sort of priest. He's a priest on the order of Melchizedek. We'll chase that guy down a little bit. All you need to know for the moment is that there is some other higher order of priests than the priests of Levi. And this guy is going to be that. The author of Hebrews is going to make hay out of this. Okay? If you really want to understand Hebrews, you'd have to read and understand Psalm 110. Probably helpful to go back to Genesis 14 where the whole Melchizedek story comes from to get all that really pretty central stuff. Psalm 110 is massive. Okay? The second psalm that he loves is Psalm 95. Psalm 95, if you have any memory of this, would be, it's the psalm that we preached. I preached on it maybe a year ago, and I tried to trick you all by interrupting a worship song in the midst of it and coming out and rebuking everybody. Do you remember that moment? That was Psalm 95, okay? This, so Psalm 95 begins all lovey-dovey, hey, we love Jesus, or, you know, we love God, he's great, what did I, and then it just comes in with this big, harsh rebuke right in the middle of it, and that's when I walked on stage to say, you know, like, stop it! Do you believe what you're singing? That passage, the second half only, is what he's quoting from. So if you look at Psalm 95, down at the bottom there, uh, verse 7 to 11, it says this. Today, if you would only hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did, in the at, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestor tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation, and I said, These are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. What is, he ta- what is Psalm 95 about? What, what era is that about? It is the wilderness, okay? Meribah and Massa, and Meribah and Massa that's, that's cities in, or a city really, it's a double named city in that they cross through during the wilderness. That 40 years that they're, on, that they're angry, that's that. That's talking about the 40 years in the wilderness. When he says, they shall never enter my rest, what does that mean? 
in the Psalm 95 context? Won't go to the promised land. They won't go to the promised land, Lily. Okay, all of that, he's gonna go to that over and over and over again, right? And you remember when I said, if Jesus is so great and he's so better, if we abandon him, that's gonna be worse than what they did when they abandoned him in the wilderness. When he's talking about them abandoning him in the wilderness, he's, he's almost always drawing that out of Psalm 95. He's gonna quote Psalm 95 multiple times, pull this argument out. So when you read it, you have to understand, okay, there was this moment in the people's history that they would remember where, they were, where God had got a great deliverance, freeing them from slavery, bringing them out, promising them all these good things but between Egypt and the promised land. They blew it. And he's going to say, don't be like them. Don't Psalm 95 your way through life. Okay, that's what he's doing. So if you understand Psalm 110, that's going to be hugely helpful. Okay, he's talking about the guy that's going to be the king and the priest. I know who Melchizedek is. That's going to help you. If you understand that we are at risk, we are all, always at risk of leaving Egypt, getting distracted on the way, and not crossing the river into the promised land, you can understand the world that he's talking to, the framework, okay? And then the third passage that you've got to know, if you, before you read Hebrews, these are the three you've got to have. Psalm 110, Psalm 95, and then finally Jeremiah 31. What's Jeremiah 31? Do you have that one in your brain at all? <coughs> New covenant, okay? There's a, basically three passages in the Old Testament Psalm, I mean, uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and then Deuteronomy 30. But chiefly, people look at Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. These are new covenant passages. And he is, what Jeremiah was saying in, in, in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. So chapter 31, verse 31, 31, 31 and following, is like, hey, we're going to clear the decks on this. This isn't working. You are not the sort of a creature that is capable of following the rules. You just can't do it. My rules are amazing, and you are really bad at this. So we're going to clear the decks. It's not going to be the way we used to do it. We're going to find a new way to make this work. What I'm going to do is instead of, I thought when I wrote those laws on like stone that you'd be able to read, and then we would just live happily ever after. But that's clearly not working. So instead, I'm going to write the law on your heart. I'm going to remove your heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move into you. I'm going to inhabit you. I will put my spirit in you. I will move you to follow my decrees. And then I think that's going to work better. So that's what we're going to do. There'll be a new covenant. A whole new, just forget everything. Forget everything I said. Just new covenant, new way to do this. I will move in. I will be the hand in the sock puppet that is you. Because you suck at all of this. That's essentially with the New Covenant messages, okay? Um, Jeremiah 31, this is the single longest New Testament, uh, uh, longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It is a big, giant chunk of Jeremiah 31, okay? So, if you want to read Hebrews, and you first get, I'm going to go understand Psalm 110, I'm going to understand Psalm 95, I'm going to understand Jeremiah 31. If you did those three things, and then you start wading into Hebrews 1, and two, and three, and four, you're going to do pretty well. Okay? That's what you're looking for. Uh, that was a lot. Let me pause. You want to interact with any of that? You want to rebuke me for saying the S word? You can do that too. It'll be okay. Psalm 110. Psalm 95. Jeremiah 31. Got it? Okay. Good, good, good. All right, take a look. So that's all here on the front. You can go through. You can literally go through and look up every one of these passages. There's a million of them, and see, understand what they say. You can look at this cast of characters. He is broadly drawing, just across time, right? We go 
Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Melchizedek, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Judah, Levi, Joseph and his sons, Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh and his daughter, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel by direct name, each one of them. Right? He's got a lot he's going to go on to. Now, I'm going to try to decide. And they're in order, too. Like... The whole chronology of things. Yeah, I mean, certainly you go through, when you go through Hebrews 11, which has a bunch of these, that's absolutely in order. Some of them he'll pull in different parts of the book as, as he needs, but Hebrews 11 is, is definitely in order. And we'll, we're going to look more, a little bit more at Hebrews 11, probably not today. So let's do this. Let's go to... Let's go inside. We'll go to the. What time is it? Uh, I'll give. I'll give you this high level view. We're gonna have to. We're gonna hit this a couple times. What I tried to do in this colorful page was this took forever, you guys. Okay, trying to figure out. I, I printed the entire book of Hebrews up in one big thing so I could vis- visibly see it all at once, and circled all the sections. And it's just, I actually kept all my notes. If you want to see that, the, the genesis of this thing. But here's. This is my best crack at taking a very long, very complex argument and making it visually graspable, okay? Here's what you're going to look for as you go through it. Hebrews breaks into three main chunks. And the main chunks are divided at these hinge points by these summary statements, okay? So chunk one is Jesus is better because he is the king. He's not merely the angel messenger boy. He is not merely Moses who brings the law. He is king. He is better because he's king. And then we get this thing that I got in green there, which is a summary statement of the whole book of Hebrews. And then we've got, let's talk about Jesus being a better priest. This is by far the largest section and the most complex section. It has false starts and it defies tidy summary. It was a beast, okay? But the priest stuff is the big main middle section where he really spends most of his time. And then you get another green section, another summary that if you walk through the chapter 4 one, and the, the, these two summaries are very, you can walk through and be like, oh, okay, correspond, correspond, correspond. These are absolutely his summary statements. And then after that last one, you get into the forerunner. Okay, so as you read it, you can pay attention and think, okay, I'm in the first section where he's talking about Jesus being a king, but you're going to be surprised because it doesn't really use the word king, but I promise you it's true, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, he's a better king. Summary statement, okay, I get that. Priest, that's where you're going to get lost. That's where you're going to get confused. That's where you're going to give up. In the whole priest section, he even gets lost and gets confused and almost gives up. Literally, he's like, there's a point in the book where he's like, he, he launches, the reason the priest thing is so weird, he starts talking about the priestly stuff, and the, he starts talking about Melchizedek, and then he's like, ah, I forgot how stupid you guys are. Hang on a minute. And he backtracks. Literally, he's like, he's like, man, I got places I want to take you guys but you're just kind of dumb. And so how am I going to do this? And he kind of like circles around and then he goes after it. I, watch it happen. It's literally what happens in the middle of this thing. He wants to talk about the priest, but he knows, he knows this is a calculus class and some of us are trying to memorize our multiplication tables, okay? And then you get that summary, watch that second summary, and then all the application, all the forerunner stuff. So at least, very least, as you watch through, you can, you can use this color map to see what you're looking at. And then what I skipped there in that little summary is this other color, which is the red stuff. So during and after each section, the Jesus is a better, he's a king, he's better than the angels. There's a warning. So hey, Susan, don't abandon him, okay? 
He's the king, okay? And then summary. And then he's like, he's a better priest. And so my goodness, he's a better priest. He's an exceptional priest. He's fantastic. How much more severely do you think it would be, we would be judged to abandon this guy who is better than anything that the world has ever seen? So don't. And then he's a better forerunner. And so my goodness, you guys, don't walk away from him. And it's more warning, okay? So as you watch through, as you go through, you're going to have the blue sections about Jesus being better interspersed with red warnings. You're going to have the green sections of these summaries as we argue that Jesus is a better king, better priest, better forerunner. Got it? Watch for those things. You can keep this thing open as you read through it. And I really hope, well, I hope that every week you've been reading, either reading ahead to be familiar with the text before we talk about it, or just as good after we talk about it, going back and reading it, right? There's never my intention to be your cheat sheet so you don't have to read it, but to be your guide, your, your helper, so that when you do read it, you're going to get more of it. You'll discover that it's filled with treasure and you can find it. This would be a very good one to really do that. So even if you haven't been doing that, consider right now, this week, read the book of Hebrews. Read through it a couple times and see if you can't find this argument that might have otherwise been a little bit elusive because it's, it's genuinely hard. Okay, now, how are we doing? Good, good, good. Questions about this? The first section, Jesus is better what? Second section, better what? Third section, better what? Forerunner. Okay, if you get that, that's going to help you. We'll look at the summaries in a minute. Here's what I want to do in our remaining time. Let's talk about the king thing because it'll be confusing to you. If you're reading that first section, you're like, I don't see any mention of king. What is the code word for king in the book of Hebrews? Son, okay? Why, on what possible basis could I argue that son means king in the book of Hebrews? Emeritus. Uh, emeritus? What do you mean by that? Oh, inheritance. Yes, and what else? Son means king. I promise this is true. Here's, here's what might be useful to know before you even get into Hebrews about that. When we say that Jesus is the son of God... There are three very different and somewhat confusing ways that the New Testament describes Christ as the Son of God. He is absolutely the Son of God. He is also the Son of God. And he is the Son of God. And those are three completely different claims, okay? Number one, what is the first, earliest, most fundamental sense in which Jesus is the Son of God? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's number two. It's good. What's prior to that? What is it? Um, prior to that, Jesus is uncreated. What's that? Okay, yes, provided that you mean eternally begotten, which is, of course, what you mean. Okay, so uh, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. In eternity past, there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is ontologically meaning in the very nature of his being, the Son of God. In some sense, it's really hard for us to get our head around. The, the Spirit, in the same way that the Spirit proceeds from, bear with me, is in, in some manner derivative of the Father and the Son. The Son himself is begotten of or derivative of the Father. The Father is the prime, the original, and in some regard, and do not burn me as a witch because this is not heresy, it just seems like it. In some regard, Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is descendant of the Father. We use the language, he is eternally begotten of the Father. And in that sense, he is the Son of God. Number two, Gary, what comes next? 
Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph was not Jesus' father. Okay? To put it slightly more crassly, there was no human sperm donor when Jesus was conceived. He is the son of God. He is, so he is ontologically the son of God. He is also incarnationally the son of God. And that is not the same thing. These are different claims. That Mary was a virgin, conceived in her womb of the Holy Spirit, was Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Son of God ontologically, the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God in that he was uh, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb, right? Third one is what we're talking about here. Third sense in which he is the Son of God. What is that? This is a little bit weirder. Ontologically, incarnationally, but the book of Hebrews is not talking about either of those. It is talking about royally. He is the heir to the throne of God. That in Psalm 2, this is what he's quoting. In Psalm 2, it says, You are my son. Today I have become your father. This is, this is Psalm 2 is what he's quoting. And Psalm 2 is about the coronation of the king. There is this moment where the king grants to his son the kingdom and says, It's your kingdom now. You are the heir of to the throne. The inheritance is yours. You are my son. You are the royal prince who has become the king. And that always is what the book of Hebrews is talking about when he, when he calls Jesus the son of God. The New Testament might sometimes refer to the ontological third, second person. It might sometimes refer to the incarnational human-born deity. But in Hebrews, he's using son of God in royal language, okay? I'll tell you who else does, just so you know that we're not making this up completely. Go to Romans 1. And in Romans 1, you, this, may have, this may have troubled you. This used to trouble me. Uh, let's start in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Listen to this. Regarding his son. So now your ears perk up. Regarding his son who... As to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, listen to this, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And when you see Lord there, read King, okay? So what does it mean that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead? Think about this. You got, three, you got three options. Was it the resurrection from the dead that caused Jesus to be the ontological second person of the Trinity? No. Was it the resurrection from the dead that caused Jesus to be the incarnationally human conceived in a virgin's womb? No. Was it the resurrection from the dead that caused Jesus to be exalted as king over the cosmos? Yes. That's what he's saying. When he says he was declared with power to be the son of God, what they're saying is he was declared with power to be king, Lord, curios, ruler. That is the point that Hebrews is making. He is one of those. And it's not just one of those. He's the best one of those that the world has ever seen or ever shall see. He is the better king. That's what it means. Okay? So son of God, king, that's what we want to see. Lily. Um, I feel like a, a simple framework to look at that is 
to look at David, who was anointed king as Jesus was kind of anointed and powered at his own baptism. But then it didn't come to fruition until all power and authority had been made hit. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. And David is the primary archetype of Christ in the Old Testament. And so it wouldn't, shouldn't be surprising to us to see that there's this run-up to David's kingship just as there's a run-up to Christ's kingship. Absolutely. There's a, there's a pattern matching that's happening there for sure. Okay? So, here's yours. Oh, Fetz? Shima had a question. Oh, yeah. Shima. question. So, you know, John 1 talks about becoming, you know, giving the right to become son of God. Um, and so, I obviously, I don't think the first two pertain to us at all, but in some way, are we, we're participating in the third. He is the son of God, and we're now also become, you know, heirs of the throne. In some, not to the same. No, yeah. We're not, we're not the second coming, the second person of the Trinity, and we're not being born. You know, we're all born with the mother and father, but we are in some way becoming heirs to the throne. Yes. And, well, I would, okay. Okay, we got to stop, but I'll say briefly, yes. Yeah. We, we will never be, we will never, it's funny, we, we actually, we'll, we'll start there next time. Because there are aspects of each of those three that we actually become. We, be, we are invited into the dance. In, in John 17, we will never become persons of God, but we, we are invited to the dance. Right? John 17 is, I and them and you and me, may they also be in us. It is, it's an invitation into this, the ontology of God, which is feels heretical, but we are invited into that, and we become, uh, we, he's adopted us as children. We become his sons, right? John 1.12, right? We, where he's invited us to become adopted as sons, and then finally, we are absolutely invited to co-reign with him. So every aspect of that, to a lesser degree, we are invited to participate in, which is crazy. Okay, we got to stop there. Read Hebrews this week. We'll talk about it again. That is all. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.